Smart Counsel is sponsored by the Masters in Counseling program at Multnomah University in Portland, Oregon. Reese Basimio is a counselor at New Pattern Counseling in Gresham, Oregon, who specializes in gender, sexuality, addiction, and spirituality. Ben Poling is a counselor in Portland, Oregon, who specializes in sexual addiction and identity at a New Day Counseling Center. Welcome to Smart Counsel, the 13th step. Otherwise, Relationships in Recovery. Smart Council provides perspectives and resources on spirituality, mental health, addictions, relationships, and trauma. I'm Reese Basimio. I'm Ben Poling. And we have as our wonderful, most fabulous, most excellent, terrific guest today, the one and only Tara Lynn Rayburn, hailing all the way from Voyage and Serenity. How's it going? Good. Glad to be here, guys. Yeah. Thanks for coming back. So, uh, for the for the listener who might have missed uh, missed you last time around when you were on the show with us, Terilyn, uh, what's a what's a a word or two or ten or twenty about who you are in the counseling world, what you do, and uh, who's your ideal client, and uh, who can give you referrals and things like that. Perfect. Yeah. Um, so Voyage and Serenity is a sober coaching, um, case management, intervention company. We primarily work with families um, who are trying to get a loved one on track with their recovery. We do individual coaching. Sometimes that's 24-hour daycare. Um, sometimes that's much more brief um, coaching that's just a few times a week in addition to their therapy. Um, and then, you know, transport people safely to treatment. So ideal client totally varies. It can be a variety of mental health issues as well as substance use. Um, so there isn't necessarily an ideal person. Um, but my favorite would be to work with families because we like to have a coach specifically for a family and get the whole system kind of on board and working together. So, yeah. That sounds really exciting. And, uh, also a really useful thing, if I'm remembering from other things you've said about it, it's sort of a paraclinical sort of resource. So so you get to operate in a little bit more of like a case management role sometimes and some sometimes in sort of a peer specialist role, something like that. Yeah, totally. So we'll meet people in the home, um, be able to be with them in their day-to-day activities. We do have some clinical services, um, primarily for substance use that are provided within the home structure as well and family sessions. Um, but yeah, we get to really like meet that person in the environment and, um, see how we can help them with what's going on in their day-to-day life. That sounds so incredible. Yes. I often wish that I could do that with my own clients, just be able to, I don't know, invade their lives and see what's actually going on and be able to help them real time with stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I love about it is being able to collaborate like with the clinicians they work with and their treatment team and be able to, you know, have those dialogues where the therapist says, well, they say everything's going great. And then I can come in and say like, yeah, but last night they were like trying to sneak out in the middle of night and like call their ex and maybe go somewhere they shouldn't be going, you know. Um, and get to like really create that sort of place where there's not secrets anymore and um, we're all on the same page. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I totally get the, the idea of like wanting to see a client in more, in more than one context. Um, I'm, 
I, I really like my office. I moved into a new office and I have like plants and windows and it's really, really quite comfortable. Um, but it's, it's also a, con- a confining four walls and I'm starting to crave more and more like a chance to like do a little bit more or like do more body movements or minimally like go for walks with people. Um, because, you know, there's only, there's only so much context I can see and being able to see a little bit more might be helpful sometimes. Totally. Yeah. Cause we're able to like, maybe that person's been isolating a lot. So they like, haven't been to that yoga class that they really love or whatever. And, um, I get to like be that person who's like, okay, I know you're scared, but let's try it together, you know, and maybe break down that barrier a little bit more and make it more comfortable. Yeah. Where could a person find you on the web or the world? Yeah, totally. Um, I'm on Facebook and Instagram, um, just under Voyage and Serenity. We also have a website, voyageandserenity.com and um, Psychology Today. Um, Our two big hubs is Portland and Nashville, um, Tennessee, but we send people all over the United States and um, we have some people in London as well. So wherever, wherever it's needed. Brilliant. Yeah. All right. So dear listener, do check out voyageandserenity.com for all your recovery companion needs. It'll be wonderful uh, while you're at it. Uh, also, um, consider visiting uh, patreon.com slash smart council. Uh, this podcast is now working toward being listener supported and we do appreciate your dollar support. Also your five-star ratings on all of your favorite podcast hosting services. So that's that. We'll say more about that later. In the meantime, let's talk a little bit about relationships. So this so this concept came out of a, co- a string of conversations with clients um, the way that a lot of these topics do because the, the conversations we have with our clients are just so insanely interesting all of the time. Yes. <laughs> and so are relationships and so is recovery. So the, the question to explore is what goes on in relationships in an active recovery process. And by that, I'm specifically thinking about an addictions recovery process, whether it's from like a chemical addiction or a sexual addiction or other process addiction or love addiction. You know, there's a, there's a, enough similar components to all of those. We can kind of lump them all. But uh, the, the, the idea is that when a person gets into an active recovery process, it's pretty transformative, pretty disruptive, and they ha- end up having to do if they do it really well, really thoroughly, it is major overhaul in their whole lives, uh, including their relationships. And that's sometimes really disorienting. So I thought, hey, this would be interesting to explore. What exactly is it that our clients are facing? And what is it that we as clinicians can do to support our recovering clients and figuring out their recovery relationship life? Beautiful. I feel like this could be its own podcast. For sure. Yes. Just <laughs> ongoing, you okay. know? Yeah. Okay, we'll plan for the spinoff. <laughs> <laughs> so, Terrilyn and Ben, what have you seen are some of the most uh, common or uh, what are some of the most common relationship hangups that a person in recovery can face? I mean, I think like trust um, is always a huge one um, from whoever they, ex- well, both with existing relationships and like new relationships they're trying to build, right? There tends to be like this doubt that a lot of people are facing from their loved ones that's really uncomfortable for them. Um, And then just like, yeah, believing in yourself and and trusting yourself to grow 
Um, and having boundaries in that is, is, is a big one for sure. So being able to develop trust is really important. And, uh, there's this, there's this big, big buzzword you just dropped with the, the boundaries, the boundary talk. Um, maybe let's dig into that a little bit, like in, well, I guess, how would you, how would you define a boundary? But, but in particular in recovery, what are some of the important boundaries that you need to consider? From the family side or from the client side or from the relationship side? Which side? Well, they all, they, they all, they all matter. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I think that boundaries for each of those parties are important. You know, taking a moment to consider like as the mother of this person who's struggling, what's my boundary as the wife, as the person that's like becoming a new friend, what is the boundaries that I'm willing to set in this relationship? And as the person who's recovering, like where are my boundaries, like within each of these relationships, you know? Um, and I think that's something that there's oftentimes so much fear around, like disappointing others, um, hurting them, um, that we really get like scared of this big word boundaries, you know? Um, and, and I think that we also can interpret it as being so black and white, like, um, kind of the old school approach of like, you we either do this and recover or it's done, you know, and, and it's not necessarily like that, right? It's mm-hmm. like defining uniquely to you, what do I need and, um, how to, how do I keep myself safe in this relationship? Um, and, and being able to have an honest dialogue about that, you mm. know, what do you think? Yeah, I think there's a lot, a lot. Yes. Yes. But um, in particular, you talked about this kind of black and white approach to boundaries. And I feel like this is something that I see happen a lot where someone's in recovery, they're learning a sense of self-respect, which is important. And they're learning a sense of maintaining safety for themselves and others, which is also important. And sometimes that can be taken to the to the functional. It'll, it'll look like saying, oh, you crossed my boundaries, you're out. I'm going to cut you off altogether. Or my family's like kind of stressful. I'm just not going to talk to them. Or this person miscommunicated with me. They betrayed my trust this one time. I don't have room for them at all. And so there ends up being this black and white approach to to two boundaries, a very overzealous one perhaps, which can end up with the person uh, cutting off all the people in their life for the sake of safety and, and sobriety, which again, safety and sobriety are important, but... I do become concerned when it comes at the cost of all of the other relationships. So I feel like a more complex approach to the boundaries, one that can allow for, well, I do need to, I do need to set expectations. I do, do need to see things from you, but you're also going to mess up. I'm going to mess up when we need to complicatedly talk through things. Yeah. We need to have a lot of self, self-compassion in that, you yeah. know, and compassion for each other, you know, cause we're all going to make mistakes. Like my mentor um, Dr. Alan Berger, he would always say, um, relationships are people growers. They highlight what we're not good at. And so that's something that like, I always tell the people I work with, like your relationship is going to mirror for you and hold up the things that you're struggling with and the places that you need to grow. You know, um, it's going to invite you to do that through a series of awkward encounters and, um, boundary talks and, and whatever. But, um, you know, we get a chance through that to kind of see like, where does the work need to take place? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And it's interesting when you see um, it's multiple growth areas uh, 
for for someone in recovery kind of overlapping where you're needing to learn boundaries, but you're also struggling with this black and white thinking. So like they're, they're overlapping. And like you said, the relationship is bringing that out that, you know, that struggle, that, that growth edge out um, of, of the black and white thinking. So having to struggle with both of those at the same time and learn how to have boundaries, but also be gracious in that in times and not quite so black and white. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that whole like um, for me, really just like encouraging people to uh, start that internal dialogue where we build self-awareness um, with asking, like, why am I setting this boundary? You know, like, what's the motive behind this? Am I like running to something? Am I doing something healthy for myself? Am I trying to run away from something? Am I trying to avoid something? Because, you know, sometimes it does feel easier to say like, nope, I'm done. I'm out of here. But that might not necessarily be what's healthy for us. You know, it might be a place in our recovery um, where we need to kind of lean in and embrace that conflict to continue our growth. Um, And so that's why, you know, the support of a treatment team and um, a sober community is so important, you know, with, with any sort of um, whether it's considered like a process addiction or, um, you know, substance use, how am I getting my support and and who do I bounce these ideas about boundaries off of, you know? Yeah. And talking about the different relationships, I'm, I'm really glad you, you, you brought up the, the family, the family system. Um, I don't always think of the family first, which I should more often, but there's definitely the, the interrelationships with the family to consider. And a major part of that, I think is going to be, you know, your own relationship with your own self, which is, it's a, it's, it's a bit, it's a big concept, you know, developing a sense of self-worth, a sense of self-respect, a sense that I deserve this relationship or a sense that I am worth, maybe it's, I like the idea of being worthy, worthy of it more than deserving because deserving just reeks of entitlement. But, um, to, to to develop the sense that I I can be in a relationship I'm, I'm worthy of good healthy relationship and that this this is important um, it and it also hinges on having your own healthy relationship with your own self like I I kind of like myself or I can at least tolerate myself and I feel like this filters into the capacity to have a really complex approach to another person or to a boundary I think that a lot of times when a conflict comes up, it's, it brings up anxiety or brings up insecurities. And those are big, uncomfortable feelings. And sometimes I'll be feeling those and I'll be uncomfortable with those in my own self, but, or the other person is feeling the feelings and I'm uncomfortable with them having feelings because it's overwhelming or because there's a threat to me. And just because, well, I mean, a big component of active addiction is like, we don't like feelings. So um, <laughs> wouldn't you know, it's sobriety and sober, so sober relationships that they, they bring up those, those pesky emotions. They're the worst. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, being able to learn an internal tolerance to your own internal experience and being able to really comfortably be with your own body, be with your own thoughts, be with your own emotions, I think becomes the foundation for being able to fully be present with someone else's. And um, if you're not overwhelmed with yourself, you're less likely to be overwhelmed by someone else unless they're like actively being antagonistic. And that's a little bit different story. Uh, what, what do you all think? Yeah, yeah. I think the the self-acceptance and, and yeah, I mean, I go back to like the 
for me, the internal questioning, I really liked, um, this isn't internal questioning, but I really love that you said, you know, I tolerate myself because for me, that was an essential starting point. Like I couldn't just, I would hear, uh, counselors in programs say things like, you have to learn to love yourself. And I was like, these people are nuts, you know? Um, and now um, I, I can identify with that. But for me, it had to start with tolerance and then acceptance. And um, and that's, again, a big topic. Um, but, you know, the internal questioning of myself, like taking a moment to pause when agitated, I think is huge. Um, because when there's boundaries either that I'm setting or that someone's setting with me, rather than reacting to things, it's really important for me to take a moment to like pause, take a deep breath, think it through, you know, um, and think about how I'm going to react to this person, place, thing, situation, um, maybe differently than I have before. So it's something like a mindfulness discipline? Yeah, totally. Yeah. There's that that mindfulness ghost again popping up everywhere. (laughs) And I think also like the thinking about the trajectory or the the history that we have for each relationship in our life. You know, like if you you could do an entire timeline just on like your relationship with your mom and your relationship with your dad, your relationship with your wife, your kid. You know, each of those relationships has this history and we have developed certain attachment styles like with those people. We've developed um, certain behavior patterns. And so there's all of this stuff going on. And so when we have to have these big conversations, for me, it's helpful to be as informed about all of that process as possible so that I can understand what's coming and coming up with inside me, you know, like I'm going to have a big reaction when it's my mom, because I know that there's this underlying resentment and um, thing that I've been struggling with most of my life. And so this is some ways I can self-soothe and be prepared for that as it happens, you know? Um, oh, yeah, there, there is that that you're bringing up, too, is we're learning how to do relationships. And, and often in a recovery context, it's people learning, learning often for the first time how to do relationships because... I mean, let's face it, when you're high or intoxicated or otherwise under the influence, like you're not actually relating to people, you know, you're not fully there. So you're not fully in a relationship. The other person isn't either. And so there's a lot of ways that many of us have used our thing of choice to not have to deal with feelings, not have to deal with conflict, not have to deal with people. So all of this, so all of this stuff, and as we're learning all the different relationship skills, I mean, there's a really big uh, value on learning about, you know, forgiveness and um, reconciliation and things like that, which are huge topics, which we won't fully get into today, but, um, but they're, they're, they're a vital component. You know, a lot of the building relationships, some of, some of it's building from scratch and a lot of it's like rebuilding stuff that's been really highly damaged. So. Yeah. And I think with that, you know, it's so important. Um, my first sponsor in recovery, she would, she drilled it into me, um, one day teacher, next day student. And so for me, like, that is so important to learn, to remember, like, I am always, always learning. And I'm not just always learning in my education or my practice as a counselor. I'm always learning in my relationships. I'm always learning how I relate to this person. I'm always learning how I react. Um, You know, like, even after many years of doing this work, there's sometimes when something might happen. um, I notice that, like, with my partner, right, I don't want to apologize and I can feel it. I'm like, oh, like gritting my teeth. Like, 
I was wrong. And it seems so easy for him, so natural to be like, yeah, I was wrong. Um, And so it's really important for me to remember I'm a student in that. And when I feel uncomfortable in that way, that's because this is some sort of opportunity that I need to learn from. I'm getting that opportunity to grow um, and to lean into that and to allow the discomfort Which is hard. It's really hard. It's so hard. I mean, good relationships, they take a good deal of, you know, humility and 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 a good good apology takes a lot of confidence and a lot more humility also. So those are important. Yeah. And you've touched a lot on like self-awareness, being aware of yourself, how uh, your strengths, soft areas, the ways that you'll react to things, times when you would react to, to things and being aware of that, being aware of this uh, tools that you have available to you to to help manage that as well. I think that's yeah. really important in in recovery and in relationships. Yeah. So we've been talking about uh, boundaries and repairing relationships and a little bit about um, who are the people we might keep some distance from or what are some ways to kind of draw back from some unhealthy situations. On the other side of things, though, there's those people who are maybe a little bit too eager to go after the relationship, or we could say the people who are maybe more anxiously attached, more preoccupied, maybe relationships. It's not, <laughs> these are the people who uh, are not more comfortable being alone. They're more comfortable being with you, so close to you that you're almost the same person. <laughs> uh, hashtag codependence. And this is also where when we, we made a brief reference in the title two to the 13th step, which for those less familiar with uh, 12 step slang in interculture, what is the 13th step? Yeah, the 13th step is, um, you know, getting a relationship and making that a centerfold, a, a cornerstone of your relationship or of your program, right? Is that relationship? Yeah. So what are some problems around this. And, and, and I'm asking this a little bit because there there is a very real way that, you know, building relationships, getting in relationships and recovery is really vital. You need community. You need close community. Um, where, where does this go wrong? I feel like you're setting me up a little bit. But um, I think, you know, the distraction, right? Like the whole goal um, for most people when they're struggling with with some sort of mind or mood altering substance or behavior pattern, even, you know, eating disorders, also another great, great example of, of one of these disorders where we tend to go to distraction. Um, and so it's really easy to distract myself with people, places, things, you know, and, um, we get a lot of really great, um, emotional highs from an early relationship, you know, um, so it can be difficult to prioritize what you're going to do. And then also, right, what if that person um, decides that they aren't really as into this recovery as you are? How do you navigate that? Are you both going to not do recovery anymore together? Um, I.e. relapse. You know, it's, yeah, it gets complicated, gets messy. It does get complicated and messy. I'm thinking, too, I mean, you talked about, you talked to Erlen about the, the, the highs that go with the relationship, which is totally true. I mean, there's that, that romantic buzz and the, the infatuation that can just become really all consuming. And there's, they're delightful experiences to be sure. But there's also a way, even apart from that, that a relationship can become a, your, your obsession. It, the other person is the thing you think about instead of thinking about yourself. Uh, 
and and not in not in the like I'm kind of like genuinely healthily selflessly like caring about the other person. That's good to do, but like obsessing over another person to where I'm not paying attention to my own body, to my own emotions, to my own needs, to my own triggers. I'm maybe compromising my own values. I'm maybe overextending myself much too much for this other person. Or or in particular, I'm I'm looking to this other person who's this entity outside of me to in a sense rescue me or make me feel or make me feel okay or or make me okay to be uh that that's kind of problematic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like putting this other person before myself, you know. And if I'm struggling um in early recovery to identify my own needs, um, what do I need for my recovery right now? What do I need um in order to maintain my recovery program? Um, how do I do self-care? If I'm struggling to do those things for myself, um, then once I try to put someone else's needs in front of that. It's exhausting. That's for sure. You know, um, I think obviously in, in kind of old school or historical treatment lingo jargon, people tend to say, you know, like no relationships in the first year. Um, and I, I think that's really a great theory. Um, but if you tell anyone that in early recovery, yeah, I mean, most people in early recovery are going to be like, yeah, whatever. Or, you know, um, you can't necessarily control that. That's not necessarily life and life on life's terms, you know. Um, not, not necessarily. But yeah. but there. But on the other hand, there there's also some benefit to to pushing yourself through through an uncomfortable thing. And in and, and using, you know, very old ancient lingo of, you know, mastering the passions and things, you know. You know the self-discipline and the abstinence from a thing—it's a good thing. Um, you know, those of us who might be able to, like, say, like, you know, abuse alcohol, get into alcohol recovery, and then maybe at some point, like, carefully reintroduce it. You know, that happens after how after having done the work of a long period of abstinence. And with relationships, it might be that way. So it might be worthwhile to to push for that abstinence. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I definitely think. I mean. There's there's a place for heeding heeding wisdom from from other other people you know mentors uh, sponsors etc. and uh, but then you know some people I think I mean it, recovery is a very individual thing as well right so everybody's recovery is going to look a little bit different um, and some people might be able to handle a relationship sooner but then some people also kind of just need to learn by experience as well so you know being committed to recovery, but then also like, Hey, I really want to have a relationship and there's an opportunity here. Um, and then maybe learning like, Oh yeah, this is why, this is why they say not to do it in the first year because it's really hard and I'm not, uh, strong enough in my recovery, my own tools and skills to be able to handle the things that a relationship brings in. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think what I kind of always default to is, um, you know, that saying I shared earlier of relationships are people growers. Um, so they teach us what we're not good at. And so, you know, I will never tell anyone don't get in a relationship in the first year, but I will say like, it's a recommendation for a reason. Um, and things are going to be a lot easier for you if you're able to maintain that. Mm -hmm. So if you're ready for the challenge, then you're certainly going to get it. If you get into a relationship, you know, um, you're definitely going to get it, but there's a reason that, that we tell people that, you know, there really is. And I, and I like that, 
recognizing that real life happens approach and allowing it to be like a kind of a kind of a soft law individualizable um what i what i would add to that is to whatever you do have a plan uh, i'm thinking of a of a guy i'm working with now who is kind of working through this a little bit and one of the the hazards i see going on for him is that he doesn't for sure have a plan he's kind of like well I know it would be probably better not to, but if the, the right thing just comes up, I mean, I don't want to pass that up. And and that's sort of like, uh, I'm undecided. I could go either way. <laughs> ambivalence. Yeah. yeah. Or the ambivalence, but but also like there's kind of a passivity to that. Like I'm not actively making a choice and working to, to stick to it. I am kind of purposefully refraining from making a, a firm commitment because I want to leave a back door open for myself because maybe really I just want whatever I want. Yeah, I think it's always one of those things where um, as uh, providers, we're able to have this opportunity to say like, all right, like if this is your plan, then let's make a plan around it. Like what exactly does this look like? Like, let's make this tangible. Right. But actually, but actually make yeah. a plan. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We need a literal plan for this. Not yeah. just like, oh, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of this, uh, by way of working toward, toward, toward a wrap up, uh, when you are working with clients who are in a recovery process, what are some of the, the main pieces of advice or encouragement that you give to your client about um, getting into or getting out of relationships in, in early recovery? Yeah, you know, I think that for me, what comes up um, is that you know, as we were talking about with each person's family history and trajectories and such, we all are coming into recovery with so much um, history and experience of enmeshed relationships, um, unhealthy relationships, not knowing what boundaries look like. Um, so without adding on an additional romantic relationship, we already have a huge amount of work ahead of us. Um as well as our relationship with ourselves, right? Oh, my word, you know? And um, as someone who really tried to follow that suggestion and it didn't work out for me as well as I wanted, um, but I'm a success story in that, you know, I, I have to say that it would have been so much easier for me if I hadn't met my partner um, in that earlier period of sobriety. But... Also, my life would not be the same if I hadn't. So, um, you know, but I had to be prepared to do a lot of internal digging and take a lot of advice from mentors and therapists and sponsors, right? Like there's a reason we have these people. Um, so I think that it's so important to be open and willing to listen to the advice that you're soliciting, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Good words. Yeah, I think my biggest... I guess piece of advice would just be to be intentional, you know, with, with every relationship that you're currently in coming into recovery, be intentional about, you know, how, how does this relationship affect me? Um, how has this relationship, uh, affected my addiction? Uh, how can this relationship, uh, support me in recovery? Um, and, and looking at that very intentionally and then, you know, looking at new relationships, romantic relationships, you know, same sorts of questions as, you know, how, uh, how is this relationship going to affect my recovery? Um, and, you know, and, and how can I plan for, for that? Um, so I think it, it's, it's going into, into recovery and into relationships being very intentional and thought, thoughtful about that related to your recovery. 
That intentionality is really important. And again, not, not a, not a, not always a fixture of, of an active addictive process. So I, I, I don't, I always encourage my people to, to, to have the relationships and usually I'm not thinking romantic relationships. I am thinking more of like the platonic friendships, the peer friendships, a lot of same sex platonic friendships because you need people, you need, you need to have people. And it, and it does take, I, I think I tend to run into more people who are relationship shy or relationship avoidant for a good reason, but, but saying, you know, you, it, it's, you gotta be bold. You gotta take the risk to plug into it, to, to open yourself up to it safely, carefully, but still boldly. And, and in there too, be, be wary of mistaking like the, the intensity of emotional feelings for actual intimacy, like actual intimacy. It's, it's a lot of work. It's not always fun. It doesn't always feel good, but it's, but that deep, you know, sense of knowing and being known, that's, um, that's a really good thing to work for. It's hard too, but, um, and it's also, it can be very different than like the, the high of Twitter patient and everything like that. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And each one of those support relationships you make, whether it's in 12 step or your outpatient or whatever, each one of those is going to be a opportunity for some sort of growth. You know, whether it's like, I need you to do this for service work and you have to say, no, I can't or um, whatever it might be. Each one of those, you're going to learn a little bit more about yourself. I love that. Every, every relationship, whether you like it or not, is an opportunity for some sort of growth. So it's a good word. And on that note, so we'll go ahead and wrap up this discussion around relationships and recovery, both the romantic and the platonic. And um, once again, uh, do check out voyageandserenity.com and check out what those services are and if they might be right for you. Also, please do visit uh, patreon.com slash smart council and uh, think about uh, contributing to our show with some dollar love. We do love the dollar love and the five-star rating love. Either way, uh, thanks for listening along and check back next time and let's keep the conversation going. We love your feedback and value the conversation. Please drop us a note at smartcouncilpodcast at gmail.com. Please also feel free to rate and review us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and anywhere your podcasts are hosted. Smart Council has been edited by Breakfast Puppies. Our logo is by Thomas Moore. The music was by Nate Bosford. Thank you for listening, and let's keep the conversation going. This podcast was edited and produced by breakfastpuppies.com.